explaining and discussing the Mula Pariyaya Sutta. This is the discourse on the root, on the root of existence. And we've just been analyzing the one basic passage of the Sutta, where the Buddha discusses the cognitive process of the uninstructed world, the one who has no knowledge of the Dhamma taught by the enlightened one, and who is undisciplined or untrained in the Dhamma of the enlightened one. And this person, the Buddha says, perceives, in analyzing the cognitive process, he perceives earth as earth, which means that he perceives it with a distorted perception. He perceives it with a perception which grasps the appearance of the object without investigating, without analyzing. And so he accepts things as they appear at their face value. This is the delusive nature inherent in perception, which is why in one sutta the Buddha compares sanya, perception, to a mirage. You know when you ride on the highway and you see ahead it looks like a pool of water, but when you approach that place where there appears to be a pool of water, there's no water, it's just the roadway. That is, in Pali, we use the word marichi, which is almost sounds almost like the English word mirage. And animals also have the same mirage appears. The same mirage appears to animals and they get misled and approach that area thinking to drink it but they find that there's no water there. So the Buddha uses this marichi or mirage-like character to illustrate the nature of perception. And so we first get deluded by these distorted perceptions, then with our thinking, our cognition, we conceive the objects of experience in ways which are influenced by certain forces that the Buddha calls elsewhere. He calls them the pancha, which means, you could call, say, factors of proliferation or elaboration. We build up a net of concepts, ideas, notions through which we interpret our experience and render our experience intelligible to ourselves. And in the case of the whirling who indulges in this conceiving or manyana, what lies behind these deluded thoughts and cognitions are the three papanchas or forces of conceptualization which are craving, conceit and wrong view, tanha, mana, ditti. Through, okay, through tanha or craving, one forms the notion mind, this is mind. 
Okay, so the three forces now behind this process of distorted cognition are craving, conceit, and wrong view. Through craving, one conceives of the object and of oneself in terms of mine. This is mine. Or else one thinks of what might be mine but isn't mine. That is the craving to possess what one doesn't. Then conceit here, mana, doesn't mean necessarily the gross conceit of thinking I am better, I am the best, or I am just as good as the other person. But this is the more fundamental conceit, which is called in Pali, asmi mana, the conceit I am. That is the idea I or I am arises in the mental horizon of the world. Then the notion I am is itself something of a blank, like an empty notion, which seeks a content. And so when one tries to give some kind of substantial content, positive content, to the idea I or I am, one identifies it necessarily with one or another of the five aggregates, the panchakanda, either with physical form, feeling, perception, mental formations, or consciousness. This way, in this way, the basic notion, this root notion, I am, develops into the more elaborate notion, this I am, where one identifies the mysterious I, what I really am, with some manifest content of one's experience, either with body, feelings, perceptions, volitional activities, or consciousness. This is what is called sakayaditi, the personality view or personal identity view. And so this is how conceiving or manyana take form of wrong views or views of self. So the mental activity of the uninstructed whirling is continually being dominated by these three notions, mine, I am, and myself, or this is myself. And those are the basic, that makes up the basic contents of conceiving. And once the whirling accepts the notion, this I am, that I have a self, then he will generally speculate about whether the self is eternal, everlasting, or something which is annihilated and destroyed at death. This gives us the opposition of eternalist views, views which posit a self or soul which exists eternally, such as we find in most of the world religions, 
or annihilationist views like materialism which takes the person to be some kind of real entity but holds that this entity, the person, is annihilated at death and doesn't exist in any form that there's no kind of survival at all. Of course, the Buddha's solution to this duality of eternalism and annihilationism is dependent origination, but teaches some Upada. But <laughs> that's a subject for a different talk. Okay, now, because the worldling has these notions of mine, I am, and myself, when he perceives any object, then he will integrate that object into his experience by identifying with it, by taking it to be some, to be the content of the I, to be the content of the self, the underlying substance of the self, or else he will grasp the object and hold to it as mine or something that might be mine. So this is what is taking place in this passage that's being um, expounded by the Buddha very, very concisely. I have to, <laughs> have to say I don't know how the early generations of the Buddha's monks would have understood <laughs> these passages unless they had already some kind of detailed explanation. Was it just in the original? Was just extremely compressed and very obscure, <laughs> which is why I say that when people want to read the Majjhima I always say you can begin with Sutta Number One, but don't expect to understand it, but don't expect even to have a glimmer of insight into its meaning till you get to the last Sutta. <laughs> then you can go back to the first Sutta. At least then you have some way to, at least some guidelines for deciphering it. For example, to understand what is meant by conceiving, you have to refer to, or at least you should refer to Sutta number 140, the passage I read last week. That, in that passage, the Buddha elaborates what are the things that are conceived. So when you put Sutta number 140, alongside Sutta number one, then you can make sense out of this notion of conceiving. Okay, so now the Buddha uses the sort of grammatical way of analysis to explain how the worldling conceives himself in relation to the object. Either he conceives the object directly as what I am or myself that is he conceives earth or else he conceives himself as existing within earth this is he conceives in earth the first is pativing manyati the second pativiyam manyati he conceives in earth or else he conceives himself to be something separate from earth, apart from earth, or else something which emerges from earth. 
These are all implications of that expression, patabito manyati. Or else he directly conceives earth to be mine. Okay, these are all modes of conceiving, of thinking, which are governed by craving, conceit, and wrong views. Then the Buddha says, he delights in earth. And the Pali here, it's significant. The word, Pali word, abhinandati, it's significant because it will, <laughs> it connects or links up with the description of craving in the Buddha's explanation of the second noble truth. He says, what is craving? It's this tanha, amongst other things, nandini, which means the craving which seeks delight here and there. So when we see the word abhinandati, then one knows that this is a, a kind of oblique reference to craving, tanha. So this is not just ordinarily finding delight, but it's seeking delight through craving, through attachment, through expectations, through clinging and grasping. And that delight, that word delight, also becomes significant when we get to the end of the sutta. Because it, again, it ties up with an important passage close to the end of the sutta. Okay, now the Buddha raises the question which will point us to the root or basis of this whole distorted cognitive process. And remember, this is called the discourse on the root, Mula Pariyaya. So now the Buddha here is showing the root behind this whole complex of distorted notions that arise in the mind of the world. He says, why is that? Because he has not fully understood it, I say. Okay, this is another very significant term, fully understood. Okay, the word aparinyata, that means not fully understood. And this word is sort of connected with the Buddha's first discourse in Benares, first the sermon at the Deer Park in Benares. There, if you remember the discourse, the Buddha explains that in regard to the Four Noble Truths, each Noble Truth has one particular function, and we have to perform one function in regard to each truth, and in regard to the Noble Truth of suffering, the Dukkang Ariyasacca. The Buddha says the f this noble truth of suffering should be fully understood. Okay, so that is sort of the task undertaken in the practice in developing vipassana or insight is to understand, fully understand the noble truth of suffering. And since this noble truth of suffering is embraced nowhere else but in these five aggregates. This means that it is the five aggregates that have to be fully understood. 
in the suttas, the Buddha doesn't give a detailed explanation of this act of full understanding. But the commentaries have a very systematic way of explaining what is entailed by full understanding. And they explain three types of full understanding. Three, we call these three stages in the deepening of insight. The first is called, excuse me for using so much Pali, (laughs) Nyata Parinya, which means literally it's full understanding of the known, of what is known. Full understanding of what is known, of the object that is known. And this means that one takes oneself, one's own personal being, and analyze this. It's not just intellectually, but this is something which is done with direct contemplation through the practice of developing mindfulness and clear comprehension. Then one starts to see the normal, the usually solid mass of one's experience starts to break apart into five distinct aspects which are the five aggregates. One sees the experience instead of being one solid whole as a complex phenomenon made up of bodily form, physical form, the body with the sense faculties, feeling feelings, perceptions, acts of volition or volitional activity and consciousness or the basic awareness. Okay, so one analyzes one's experience into these five aggregates and one highlights these aggregates in terms of their distinct characteristics. The physical form has its characteristics. In fact, one can analyze these five aggregates even further. The bodily form into the four elements and the secondary types of form. Feeling into pleasant, painful, neutral feelings. Perceptions into different types of perceptions. The mental activities, volitional activities into the different positive and negative states. And consciousness by way of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. So one starts to see how the solid mass of experience breaks up into these diverse components, each with its own subordinate constituents and each with its own characteristics. Okay, then the tirana, still within the nyata parinya, the full understanding of the known, not only does one analyze the experience into its components, but one also sees how these factors arise through conditions, that they're all conditioned, they depend on their own causes and conditions. The body stands in dependence on food, water, air, 
feeling depends on contact between sense faculty and object. Perception, also object sense faculty. Volitional activities have their conditions. Consciousness depends upon this whole organism with all of its... Consciousness depends upon this physical organism with the sense faculties, with all the other mental factors and the objects. So one sees that all of these factors that make up our existence are conditioned phenomena arising and falling away through their conditions. Okay, this is all the first aspect of full understanding. Then we come to the second aspect, which is called Tirana Parinya. Again, one shouldn't be frightened by the Pali expression. It means full understanding through investigation or examination. And this refers to the stage where one is seeing the five aggregates as subject to arising and passing away, rise and fall. And as one investigates the arising and falling away of the five aggregates, then one sees that they all have the three marks of existence. They are all impermanent, that nothing lasts even for a single moment. But even the body, it's really just the stream or mass of physical phenomena, physical happenings just breaking up moment by moment. That's why the Buddha says that the body is like a lump of foam. As the foam rides down the river, it's always breaking up. Feelings, perceptions, all the five aggregates are rising and passing away. Therefore, they are all impermanent. And what is impermanent is not worth clinging to. It's, you say, it's a concealed form of suffering. And what is impermanent and subject to suffering cannot be identified as myself. So, in this stage of insight, one sees the five aggregates as impermanent, suffering, and non-self, anicca, dukkha, anatta. Okay, then comes the third stage of full understanding. This is the highest stage. This is called pahana parinya, which is full understanding through abandonment, abandoning. This is the stage of where the full, where the insight, the wisdom becomes so complete and so profound that it results in the abandoning of lust, hatred, and delusion. Raga, dosa, and moha. And this is the stage when insight reaches its culmination, its fulfillment, then it brings the abandoning of all of the mental defilements, 
That is this third stage, full understanding through abandonment. Okay, and so when the Buddha says <laughs> that the whirling engages in these deluded thoughts, these distorted cognitions, because he has not fully understood his experience, then we should we can interpret it to mean that he has not understood it by way of these three types of full understanding. Okay, now this basic pattern is applied in each section of the sutta. It's applied to 24 objects, 24 categories, which we could say are quite exhaustive. They exhaust the entire possible realm of experience and not only experience but of existence. And so now we don't have to explain this pattern further for each of these, but we could just take them and see what are these 24, I think the expression is manyana bhattu, bases or objects of conceiving. First, we have the four elements, the earth, water, fire, and air. And in Buddhist philosophy, these four elements don't mean the gross things that we normally designate by earth, water, fire, and air. But rather they are four basic properties of matter, of all material phenomena. And so any unit of matter combines these four properties, four characteristics. The earth element is the characteristic, what has the characteristic of hardness or solidity. It is the foundation for all the other material properties, physical properties. The water element is what has the characteristic of fluidity the liquid nature. And it also has the function of binding material phenomena together. I think <laughs> the early Buddhist teachers came to this conclusion because maybe they observed what happens when one makes a roti, a chapati, you take the flour, if you just try to combine the flour, what happens? It falls apart. <laughs> but when you sprinkle water into it, then knead it, then the particles bind together and you get a, a roti. And so they concluded that water, therefore, has a kind of adhesive function, binding all material particles together. And then fire is called of the calorific element, the element of heat or energy in matter. The reason why any physical object has some degree of heat is because of the fire element. Then the air element is the element of distension, expansion. Because if you take a balloon and you blow into it, 
it swells out that is because of the input of the air and wind is what causes motion so the function of the wind element is to cause motion so the early Buddhist theorists came to the conclusion that when one the body is walking then what causes the motion of the limbs is the coursing of the wind element through the body now I think we would call them the nerve currents or <laughs> be the transmission of <coughs> certain neurotransmitters, the movement of certain neurotransmitters. But for the early Buddhists, it was the movement of the wind element. Okay, we have these four elements present in any physical object, but in certain objects, one or another of the elements predominates. So in solid objects, the earth element predominates, and the other elements are secondary. In water and other fluids, the liquid element, the water element, predominates. In fire, the heat or fire element predominates. And in the air and wind, the air element predominates. So these are the four elements. Those are the first objects of conceiving. Then next we come to Bhuta, the word, Pali word Bhuta, which here doesn't mean ghost or spirit, but living beings. But since other types of living beings will be mentioned in what follows, the commentary says that the word beings here refers only to the beings of the sense sphere. This, now we're, we're getting into the Buddhist cosmology in which we have the different realms of existence. Here, by beings would be meant the beings in the sense sphere that are immediately accessible to our awareness, to our experience. Let's say human beings, animals, insects. And they would also include hell beings and pratas, hungry ghosts. Okay, then next come the devas or gods. These would be the gods of the lower heavenly worlds. Now, I will have to erase this in order to get our cosmos on the blackboard. Okay, when the texts say, speak of perceiving gods as gods, this refers to the six deva worlds of the sensuous realm the Kamaloka. These are, I don't have to remember, okay, the four great kings, and we have here the Tabatingza Devaloka, the world of Sakya, and the Tusita Devaloka, the world of Maitreya, where Maitreya, the future Buddha, is now presiding. Then also we have other Deva worlds, we don't have to enumerate them. Okay, these worlds are the life in these worlds are the life in these worlds has a longer lifespan than the human realm, greater happiness, more bliss, luminosity, 
happiness, joy, and so on, more power, more radiance, but also it's impermanent, it's part of samsara. Okay, now beyond, the, after the devas, the Buddha mentions, he perceives pajapati is pajapati. Here it seems the Buddha is departing from the regular cosmology, and he's taking, or at least the text, is taking a kind of dig at Brahmanism, at early Brahmanism, since Pajapati was a fig, is a figure mentioned in the Vedas as one of the forms of the creator God. He is the God who creates the universe out of himself and then enters into the universe and remains as its inner master or controller. And so here I think the Buddha is just bringing Pajapati in in order to, for the sake of completeness, so that he covers all of the deities, or at least some of the deities, recognized by early Brahmanism. Okay, the next is Brahma. The next in the sutta is Brahma, or maybe Mahabrahma, the great Brahma. Now, Brahma was, according to the Brahmanism, he was the supreme god, also another form of the creator god. But in the Buddha system of thought, the word Brahma designates a class of deities who dwell beyond the sense sphere heavens in a realm of existence superior to the sensuous realm. This is the form realm, the rupa loka. And according to the Buddhist picture of the universe, the form realm is divided into four layers, four and rebirth into these realms comes about through mastering the particular meditations called the four jhanas. We've discussed these many times. There, is, there are four jhanas. The first, called in the sutta, is simply the first jhana second, third, fourth jhana. If one masters the first jhana and retains it at the time of death but doesn't go beyond the first jhana, then one gets reborn into the first layer of the form realm, which is called the Brahma world. Actually, the Brahma, each of these four form realms is divided into at least three strata, but we don't have to be able to go into such detail, otherwise it's too much, too complicated. So just leave it simply, if one masters the first jhana, then one will be reborn in the Brahma world. If one masters the second jhana, then one gets reborn in the second level of the form realm amongst the chief of these devas, these are called the gods of streaming radiance. 
if one masters the third jhana, then one gets reborn in the third realm, which the peak of that is called the realm of refulgent glory. Then the fourth, if you, you master the fourth jhana, then one gets reborn in the realm of abundant fruit. That is, if one masters the jhanas without going further by developing insight, one becomes, if one becomes attached to this jhana and develops a liking for it, then the mind leans to that particular level of experience. And because the mind is now suffused with the experience of that very deep, profound, blissful, peaceful state of meditation, the mind at death, the mind does not come back to this miserable, <laughs> wretched, unsatisfactory sensory world, but it naturally moves into these realms of great bliss and radiance, higher even than the Deva worlds, and it remains there for many aeons, so they say until the karma, the force of the karma, burns up and then one falls away and takes rebirth elsewhere. Then, okay, we've gone through now number 13, that's 13. Then 14 mentions something called the Overlord. This again, I think the Buddha must be referring to some concept of Brahmanism, since this doesn't fit into the regular concept of his cosmology. Maybe, or maybe we could say the overlord perhaps will be the chief of the fourth jhanic level, the chief of the gods of abundant fruit. The Pali word is abhibhu. Is that a few? No, our is that the Upanishada or Veda? Okay, then next come four planes of existence, or also planes of experience, meditative states beyond the four jhanas. So if one becomes disenchanted even with the fourth jhana, one aspires to reach some meditative state even more tranquil, more peaceful than the four jhanas, then one enters into the formless attainments, which are called the base of infinite space, base of infinite consciousness, base of nothingness, base of neither perception nor non-perception. And if one masters that meditation, and the mind becomes familiar with that attainment and still one possesses it at the time of death, then the mind at death will pass on to rebirth in the realm that corresponds with one's attainment, with that attainment which one has the greatest mastery over into the corresponding realm will one be reborn. But even those realms are 
impermanent, therefore unsatisfactory, and empty of any kind of permanent, substantial self. Okay, now the Buddha, when he comes to the base of neither perception nor non-perception, he's gone through the entire cosmos, the entire universe. But now he takes everything once again and divides it up in a different way in terms of objects of perception. Here we have four categories. What is seen, heard, sensed through the other senses, smelling, tasting, touching, and what is thought or cognized with the mind. Again, with each of these, the worldling perceives it as such, misconceives it, takes it to be mine, delights in that, because he has not fully understood it. Then, having gone through the four objects, the Buddha next takes everything again and divides it into two categories, ekata, which means unity or oneness, and nanata, difference or diversity. And here the commentary explains that it is the one who reaches the meditative attainments, who has this experience of unity. And so he is the one who will think, I am the oneness, the unity of all, that is myself, the great one without a second. Whereas the ordinary person who doesn't have this meditative experience, he perceives everything is diverse, and so his conceivings, his thoughts, are always tied down to the level of diversity. So of course he can study <laughs> the writings of those who write and teach about unity, and then he'll also think, myself is the great one without a second. I say that that might fit in perhaps with the system of the Sankhya. There's one of the Indian schools of philosophy in which everything is, the whole phenomenal universe is one called Prakriti, which has many different aspects, but it's all unified in being different manifestations of nature or substance, Prakriti. And what is apart from that is the observer or the witness. This is called Purusha. <laughs> so what could fit uh, almost any kind of philosophical system into these <laughs> different uh, modes of analysis. Okay, then in 25, <laughs> now he perceives all as all. Now the Buddha is not dividing everything, but just taking everything together. So he perceives all as all. This is maybe the kind of experience that comes, or the kind of thought that comes. Some people have what they call cosmic consciousness, where one perceives the all as oneself. 
or else well also he conceives himself apart from all I have to say <laughs> that's a little bit of a problem I don't know how to resolve it and he conceives all to be mine and he delights in all again because he has not fully understood okay now there comes <laughs> number 26 this is he perceives Nibbana as Nibbana then having perceived Nibbana as Nibbana he conceives himself as Nibbana he conceives himself in Nibbana he conceives himself apart from Nibbana he conceives Nibbana to be mine he delights in Nibbana why is that? because he has not fully understood it okay here the commentary gets a little worried by this <laughs> and they think that this can't be the Nibbana of Buddhism so this must be the Nirvana of the other systems of thought but it seems to me here the criticizing or cutting down false conceptions, misconceptions even about the Buddhist Nirvana <laughs> why not if somebody of course in the case of the whirling he would not have a real direct perception of Nibbana itself but he would have ideas about Nibbana or Nirvana and so he will also engage in thought construction speculative um, speculations about Nirvana what is the relation of his self to Nirvana and so he will come up with these misguided or deluded conclusions about Nibbana and again the reason is that also when it says that he delights in Nibbana he can't be delighting in the real Nibbana because he hasn't actually experienced it but he becomes attached to his ideas about Nibbana and so he takes delight in those ideas that's why sometimes in the newspapers and in the Buddhist journals you see different writers engaging in polemics or if you, not to speak of the newspapers here, but you read the history of Indian Buddhism and almost from the day the Buddha expired <laughs> there have been fights between this school and that school what is the nature of Nirvana <laughs> that's because they are all each becoming attached to their own conception and then they argue it and defend it against the views of the other schools not realizing that real Nirvana is the cessation of all deluded concepts including the deluded the concepts about Nibbana itself when, when he says he perceives Nibbana yeah. that is from a state in itself the perceiving Nibbana he, it says here he perceives Nibbana as Nibbana but now a worldling by definition wouldn't have a real an actual perception of, of the Nibbana the reality the real Nibbana since if he did, with that perception, he ceases to be a whirlwind. That makes him a stream enter. But rather, I take this to mean that he, in his thinking about Nibbana, he has this idea of Nibbana, 
and he takes that idea to be or he takes the real Nibbana to conform to his idea of it that's the way I would okay and that takes us <laughs> from the <laughs> most basic material elements all the way to the most refined formless realms of existence through Nibbana to the end of this survey of the 24 bases of conceiving. And so if there's any questions, comments, anything need clarification, but please be aware I had to go through this, these 24 bases of conceiving very quickly in order to get it all into one any anything need clarification? It's called uh, Manyati. Yeah. yeah. We use it uh, to say that someone believes or thinks so. Manyati. Yeah. Is not conceiving or perceiving. Is only believing or thinking so. And our scholars translate it into Hindi. Yeah. Then they translate it as manana. Manana means believing. Believing. Or thinking so. Thinking so is better. Yeah. So. Believing it has too much of a cognitive element already. Believing goes closer with views, but thinking in terms of mind, thinking in terms of eyes, not necessarily believing. Also, manyati is sometimes used in the text in a neutral way, like the Buddha says to the monks, what do you think the word there is manyati? Yeah. But it does, in that context it doesn't have this loaded meaning. But when it occurs like with this doctrinal context, then it has that sense of distorted thinking, deluded thinking. Even some early scholars use the word imagining. Uh, Does he become irreversible? Yes. Does, does the stream enter become irreversible? Yes. Definitely so. In the, in the cognitive pattern. In the cognitive pattern, it definitely changes. But that's what we come to next next week. That's what's dealt under the disciple and higher training. So I can't elaborate it now. <laughs> any any other questions?